Welcome to EM Guidewire, your guide to emergency medicine, brought to you by the residents and faculty from Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Hey gang, Brian Allen with EM Guidewire back for our fourth installment of Sepsis Awareness Month Goodness, where we will closely look at the concept of guided resuscitation in the care of the septic patient. Let's get started. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's edition of EM Guidewire Core Concepts. This week's episode is brought to you by ZPAX, everyone's favorite antiviral, ZPAX. This week, we're rolling with a PGY3 dude squad, so if it smells a little funny in here, well, I guess you guys can only hear us, not smell us. Thank God. But you got me, Sean Murray. I'm Craig London. And I'm Jeremy Driscoll. This week, we're continuing our focus on sepsis for Sepsis Awareness Month. So far, we've covered what sepsis is and its pathophysiology, fluid resuscitation and antibiotic therapy, and a bunch of other stuff. Make sure to check out those episodes because not only were they awesome, but they will help inform what we're going to talk about today, which is guided resuscitation of the septic patient. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What do you mean guided resuscitation? Don't you just click that code sepsis power plan box, kick back, and watch the patient get better? Oh, yeah. Hashtag dispo. But in all seriousness, our patients do not come uniform, and so our plans shouldn't be cookie cutter either. We need to be individuals, and you use this thing that we have called our brain. You know, I'd like to show you what I mean on my iPhone, but it's dead, so we'll have to stream it from my iMac to the Apple TV instead. Makes perfect sense. In previous episodes, we talked about the importance of early and aggressive fluid resuscitation. Here at our institution, that involves two consecutive boluses of 20 cc's per kg of lactated ringer's fluid. Where does that number even come from? Fluid resuscitation has been the paradigm intervention for shock as far back as the early 1800s when it was used as a treatment for cholera. However, it didn't become standardized for sepsis until 2001 when Manny Rivers and his crew published a study surrounding early goal-directed therapy. This paper advocated for a multifaceted approach to treating septic shock including titration of cardiac preload, afterload, and oxygen delivery. In addition to antibiotics and vasopressors, Rivers and his cohort pitched a 30 cc per kilogram bolus of crystalloid and more fluids as necessary thereafter. And this was based on central venous pressure and whether or not the patient's heart rate decreased. This resulted in the patients getting a lot of fluids. Rivers' paper reported a significant decrease in in in-hospital mortality in patients who followed the early goal-directed therapy protocols. Since then, this has served as the basis for sepsis resuscitation guidelines and research. Fluid resuscitation has been the cornerstone therapy for 20 years now. We've gotten even more aggressive with the most recent surviving sepsis campaign guidelines recommending a full 40 cc's per kg bolus for the patients in septic shock. That's where our protocol comes from. So there's a lot of holes that we could poke in the river's paper, but for the sake of time, we're going to focus just on the fluids. Over the last 19 years, there's been a bunch of studies and meta-analyses, including the ARISE, Process, and Promise trials, that failed to replicate the improved mortality reported in the initial investigation. In these trials, patients undergoing early goal-directed therapy were found to have similar mortality rates, but actually more costly hospital stays, higher ICU utilization rates, and higher amounts of fluids given. We know that fluid overloading our patients can also worsen their outcomes. Numerous trials have showed increased mortality in patients with fluid overload. The VAST trial even demonstrated an inverse relationship between fluid balance in the first 12 hours of treatment and in-hospital mortality. The fact of the matter is, our septic patients don't arrive in a one-size-fits-all hospital gown. Most of the time, we can't even get them in a hospital gown at all, but that's a problem for a different day. Most will be severely volume-depleted. 
but others aren't going to be very fluid responsive at all. In particular, patients with ESRD, congestive heart failure, ARDS, or other lung injuries are going to be particularly susceptible to fluid overload. If only there is a way to guide our fluid goals other than the patient's comorbidities. Well, as we so often do on this show, we're going to recommend the use of bedside ultrasound to help us make these decisions. A quick cardiothoracic ultrasound can tell us a lot about what we need to do to resuscitate our patients with sepsis. That's right. An echo, echo, echo can give us an idea of the patient's cardiac function. If the heart is hyperdynamic with a completely collapsible IVC, then they are likely to respond to further fluid resuscitation. Conversely, if the mitral valve is hardly moving and the IVC is plethoric, we might want to hold off on a big fluid bolus at all right now. But be aware, and I am playing devil's advocate here, an empty IVC and hyperkinetic heart does not always equal volume depletion. These bedside ultrasound findings may result from either hypovolemic shock or vasodilatory shock. If you have a patient with a massive GI bleed who's in hypovolemic shock, clearly volume repletion is indicated. However, in most cases of septic and vasodilatory shock, then the best treatment may be vasoconstriction with vasopressors like norepinephrine. The bottom line I want to hammer home is that the treatment should correct the underlying problem. Simply because a shocked patient is volume responsive does not mean that volume is the best treatment. You'll be tempted when you see that pancake diVC begging for volume. But take a minute, reconsider the physiology and cardiovascular hemodynamics to help best treat your patient. Exactly. We can even take a step further by looking for B-lines in the lungs. If we're seeing signs of developing pulmonary edema, the right move is to cut the fluids for now rather than bolus them. While the surviving sepsis guidelines advocate for 40 cc per kg bolus to be given within the first three hours, we still have time to do this in smaller aliquots and reassess before giving more. I totally agree here. Serial ultrasounds as we resuscitate these patients might sound like a lot of work, but these are patients we should be reassessing frequently anyway. They're critically ill. Now, while the first half of this episode might sound like a hate fest on fluids, I want to be clear here. We're not trying to suggest ignoring the surviving sepsis guidelines. The majority of these patients are still going to need large volume resuscitation. Correcting hypotension quickly is imperative to these patients' survival. But like any other intervention, fluids are a medicine, and medicines can be harmful if given in the wrong dose. We need to be smart about when, how much, and to whom we give our fluids to. Thankfully, we've got some tools to help us make that decision. All right. Let's say I've got a patient here with congestive heart failure, EF 20%, and he's presenting with bilateral pneumonia. After 20 cc's per kg, they're developing an oxygen requirement, and when I ultrasound them, they have a plethoric IVC and B-lines bilaterally. After giving another 20 cc's per kg, what's my next move? All right, so now we get to talk about the fun stuff. And by that, I mean pressors and other adjunct therapies. Like Dr. Loundon said, your patient has a contraindication to aggressive IV fluid resuscitation. Or maybe your patient has been administered fluids and still hypotensive. Where do we go from here? Our major goal here is to establish an adequate map immediately or at least as quickly as possible. And we can do this using peripheral vasopressors. Pressors function optimally when the vascular space is filled, but it's okay to start them even if they're not. Now, there are a bunch of different type of pressors out there, but we're not going to go into that right now. We're going to boil it down and make it really simple. If you want to learn about all the pressors, though, out there and how they work, check out our prior EM Guidewire episode covering this topic. So, Dr. Driscoll, whenever I see you resuscitating a patient in septic shock, it always looks like you've got something powerful in your pocket. And that's just because I'm excited to see you, Craig. But I always have a bag of norepinephrine on me for these situations. This is going to be your go-to presser for septic shock. It supports circulation by improving preload, afterload, and inotropy simultaneously. If the blood pressure cannot be maintained by norepinephrine, consider adding an epinephrine infusion without delay. Yes, that is correct. Epinephrine is also an excellent vasopressor of choice in septic shock. 
For reasons that we still don't know and are pretty unclear, individual patient responsiveness to vasopressors is pretty unpredictable. We don't know exactly why, but some patients respond better to epinephrine than norepinephrine. For patients who aren't responding well to norepinephrine, I think it's pretty reasonable to start with a low-dose epinephrine drip, which we'll talk about in a moment called the epinephrine challenge. If your patient is still in refractory shock, vasopressin can also be added to the norepinephrine as a second-line agent. And you're going to start that at 0.03 units per minute at a fixed dose. Some evidence suggests that vasopressin may reduce arrhythmias compared to other pressors with catecholamine properties. Importantly, though, if vasopressin is used, it may be most beneficial if started relatively early while on the low-dose norepinephrine. Ooh, and what about dopamine? Man, my caveman brain cannot handle dopamine, so let's not even go there. It should be used hesitantly and only in highly selected patients, like those at low risk of tachyarrhythmia with an absolute or relative bradycardia. All that renal protection stuff with low-dose dopamine is nonsense, and dopamine may have increased mortality rates compared to other pressors, especially in pediatric septic patients. And last but not least, the most sexiest vasopressor of them all, methylene blue. You mean that stuff that we use for methemoglobinemia? Oh, yeah. And guess what? We have another episode of EM Guidewire featuring our very own Dr. Driscoll regarding this exact topic. But just so we all know, methylene blue is a consideration for people in refractory septic shock. My patient is still dying. Please help me. For extremely ill patients who are severely shocked and responding poorly to resuscitation, it is reasonable to give corticosteroids sooner rather than later. Consider hydrocortisone 50 to 100 milligrams in the emergency department in these cases. But please, do not administer steroids for the treatment of sepsis in the absence of shock. Now, let's go back to pressors. Dr. Murray, what dose rate do you usually start your norepinephrine at? Well, I need all the luck I can get, so I start my norepinephrine at 7 micrograms per minute. Ooh, yes, I love the number 7 too. But how quickly and how high can we crank that norepi up until we need to consider adding additional agents? Published series suggest that it's really not uncommon for septic patients to require high-dose vasopressors, like above 1 microgram per kilogram per minute of norepinephrine. That's your 100-kilo patient getting 100 micrograms of norepinephrine per minute. It's interesting to note, though, vasopressor dose is moderately predictive of mortality. Yeah, I'm sure you're going to get some strange looks from others in the room if you tell them to put the norepi at 75. Yeah, you definitely will. You probably will even once you get past 20 micrograms per minute. Important though, there's no particular vasopressor dose that is 100% specific for death. For example, I've seen studies with patients who can survive despite requiring extremely high doses. That's more than 2 micrograms per kilo per minute, like 200 micrograms per minute for our patient. I agree with the concept of a maximum dose vasopressor should be discouraged. It's really just a myth. However, limiting vasopressor dosage below an arbitrary rate could prevent successful resuscitation in the sickest patients. When patients first present to our emergency department in sepsis, you have to consider that we are already very behind on their resuscitation. The usual approaches to sepsis include gradual escalation of resuscitation, which may fail to stabilize the sickest patients. In particular, a strategy of starting fluids and antibiotics alone for the first few hours is often ineffective. So I discovered an approach by a critical care physician, Dr. Josh Farkas, uh, regarding the algorithm for vasopressor titration in patients with septic shock that I really like, and it's really a more streamlined approach that they term as accelerated goal-directed therapy. And the idea behind this is something we believe to truly help improve resuscitation in the very first hours of presentation to the ED with septic shock patients. For patients presenting in severe shock and hypotension, there's really nothing beneficial by delaying initiation of pressors like norepi while waiting to fluid resuscitate the patient. 
As we previously discussed, hammering someone with fluids has been associated with increased mortality, even renal failure, and persistent septic shock. Ideally, early initiation of norepinephrine with a moderate amount of fluids is probably the best strategy. You don't need to wait to drop a central line to start the norepinephrine either. There are numerous studies out there showing the safety of norepinephrine with good peripheral IV access. I love putting in a central line just as much as the next guy, but norepi is just a wonderful medication that you can start peripherally. It's going to be in there causing all sorts of venoconstriction. It's going to increase our preload and help us avoid the volume overload from aggressive IV fluid administration. So uh, going back to Dr. Farkas and his vasopressor algorithm, he has a titration algorithm that I really like. And basically what it is, is you start with low dose norepinephrine, and that's between zero to 10 micrograms per minute. If their blood pressure comes up with this, you're done. Keep it at this and admit the patient to the ICU. However, if they're persistently hypotensive, this is when we want early initiation of vasopressin at our fixed dose. If their blood pressure comes up now, we're okay. But guess what? Our patient's still hypotensive. At this point, uptitrate the norepi to about 20, 25 mics per minute. And this is when we consider giving steroids as well. But guess what? Your patient's still hypotensive. This is when I grab my ultrasound machine, take a look at their heart, take a look at their lungs, see if I'm appropriately resuscitating this patient. Are they severely tachycardic and hyperdynamic? If that's the case, then continue to uptitrate the norepinephrine. If not, this is where we employ the epinephrine challenge. And what that basically is, is using low-dose epinephrine to see how responsive this individual patient might be to a different vasopressor. Starting someone at about 4 to 6 micrograms per minute of epinephrine may demonstrate favorable responses in respect to norepinephrine. What we're looking for is increased mean arterial pressures, heart rates coming down, increased urine output, warmer extremities, cap refill improving. If you don't see any of these, then consider downtitrating the epinephrine, stopping it, and increasing the norepinephrine. However, if they are responsive, uptitrate the epinephrine and try to downtitrate the norepinephrine. To summarize, start with a low-dose norepinephrine, and if the patient is still in refractory shock, initiate vasopressin before you reach high-dose rates of norepinephrine. Vasopressin has been found to be most beneficial early in the course of septic shock. Now, while this might help with our blood pressure, that's not actually our goal here. The evidence points to improvement in renal function throughout the patient's hospitalization when vasopressin is initiated early. However, do not wait on vasopressin before initiating other therapies like epinephrine for a refractory septic shock. And if I'm already beginning a second vasopressor, now's the time to give the corticosteroids. Speaking of, epinephrine is next, and usually if the patient is at this point, they need some inotropy. Use your ultrasound to help you make this decision. Epinephrine at low doses has higher inotropy effects with the additional benefit of vasoconstriction at higher doses. When all else fails, consider salvage therapies like methylene blue. Well, that will finish it up for this week's episode and brings us to a close for our sepsis series here at EM Guidewire. Thank you to all who have listened over the last several weeks. This episode was brought to you by the team here at the J. Lee Garvey Innovation Studios at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go, be awesome today. CMC out. My patient is still dying. Please help me. Was it unique? New York. Yeah. Unique New York. Mommy made me mash my M and M's. It's a manly musk. Yeah. It literally lasted till the very end. It just died. Oh, don't give it any fluids. <laughs>